You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Tuesday, December 8, around 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Tony Greer. But first, with today's stories, Haley Drasnan. Hi, Ash. The markets were reacting Tuesday to hopeful vaccine and stimulus news, especially with the U.K. starting to distribute the Pfizer vaccine. We've been talking a lot about the dichotomy between the real economy and the markets, and we're seeing it firsthand this month in December with record highs so far, despite a weak jobs report for the month of November. The U.S. has added back around 56% of the jobs lost from the spring, but 9.8 million jobs still have not been recovered, and the losses at this point are on par with the worst point in the Great Recession. So I wanted to highlight the K-shaped recovery in the housing market, because frankly, I don't think it's being covered enough and it's so clear. Moody's Analytics found that 12 million Americans are behind on rents and utilities, and they'll owe an average of $5,800 by early January. In total, tenants could owe $70 billion in back rent. It's really an alarming sign that millions of unemployed Americans can't pay for basic needs. The federal eviction moratorium is set to expire at the end of the year on December 31st. This order came from the CDC in September and had provided protections after the CARES Act expired over the summer. Evictions really do underscore the deep need for another stimulus bill. Those who are expected to pay that back rent are also likely receiving unemployment benefits that are also set to expire by the end of the year. The final version of this relief package by bipartisan senators does include an extension on the moratorium of evictions, but landlords are still eager to get paid because they have their own bills and taxes to pay too, so it's really just further kicking this can down the road. Meanwhile, builders of big homes are seeing the best housing market in 30 years. Toll Brothers' earnings were released on Monday. Their sales are up 7% from last year. They generated around $2.5 billion in sales, and shares of Toll Brothers are up nearly 25% in 2020. Real estate brokerage firm Redfin, their total revenue is up 7% year-to-date, and its stock is up more than 400% since its March low. The iShares U.S. Home Construction ETF is up more than 125% since March. The U.S. housing market has gotten a boost from pandemic trends, as many have left large cities in search of bigger homes in less crowded areas where they can work remotely and enjoy more space. Because interest rates are low, mortgage rates are historically low, right now below 3%. The question is, it can't last forever, but can it last through 2021? It's a cyclical business. There will be a bust if there's a boom, but it's just a matter of when. All of this data indicates that it won't happen anytime soon. What's driving this boom is really true demand. It's a change in consumer behavior. 
I came across the S&P CoreLogic K-Shiller National Home Price Index, which measures average home price in major metropolitan areas, and it rose 7% year over year in September. It's the highest annual growth rate since May 2014. Existing home sales, which make up the bulk of the housing market, also continue to trend upwards and recently marked five consecutive months of month-over-month gains. Anyways, this data just goes to show you that the deep reality of the COVID economy is that the K-shaped recovery clearly has two different outcomes facing Americans, and we need to be aware of it on all levels, not just Wall Street and Main Street, but the housing market too. Back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. TG Tuesday, Tony, welcome back. Great to be here, Ash. Great to be here, man. Always enjoy these shows. Tony, so what are we looking at? We're doing this on a Tuesday, as always. Uh, what happened yesterday? How did we start off the week? Yeah, you know, it's always a good way to look at it, Ash. We came in, um, you know, this week to me seems to be about, you know, the Airbnb IPO um, and the Tesla secondary that's taking up a lot of the oxygen in the markets right now. Um, you know, some other headlines that have been interesting to me are the Bank of Japan became the biggest stock owner in Japan which is, you know, sort of a nod to what their policy has done to their financial markets. Um, you know, they've been battling the deflation beast and they've needed the Bank of Japan to get in there and actually buy ETFs and stocks and commodities and stuff like that to keep their markets alive. So, you know, that is hopefully not a sign of what's coming to our market here, but you have to keep an eye on it because, you know, we, we're employing a lot of the same tactics that Japan employed for a long time. And, you know, they haven't really been able to inflate their market since. So that's kind of the Debbie Downer story, I guess, that I'm going to start off with, you know, that kind of yeah. broke on Monday. And then to get into the market. You know, in some ways, it seems like Japan has been the ghost of uh, Christmas future, right? It's like uh, all the things that we say aren't going to happen in the U.S. Uh, they get previewed in Japan, and then it seems like they get rolled out here with deepening, uh, deepening risk. Definitely. Definitely, we're, we're running along a dynamic like that, especially until we can spark some kind of actual inflation. Yeah. So we get into the market rotation yesterday, and we've got gold stocks up, you know, 3.5% rally as gold bounces off of support. You know, we've got technology, you know, going red yesterday, a um, little bit of weakness in refiners, weakness in cannabis stocks. But in general, as you can see, you know, we come in today and, you know, markets get back on their feet. So it's been a, a different type of rotation, I would say, since that miracle Monday, if you remember, when we came in on November 9th, where uh, we had President-elect Joe Biden and the first of several COVID vaccines. And to me, that's really when the market started taking on a little bit of a different shape. Yeah. You know, you rolled up some of the in, uh, some of the interesting data points uh, from November 9th to the current date. What are your thoughts on that and the move that it's made? Man, you know, that's that's been everything to me, Ash. You know, that's been, you know, the signal to me that the rotation is changing. But as you can see by the S&P currently scraping the highs of all time on the screen behind me up above 3,700, that this rotation is capable of advancing the stock market and, and continuing the ascent, I'm calling it, toward S&P 4K, if I may. 
You know, it's been a, a dramatic change in index market cap rotation. So we've had the Russell pick up the lead and, you know, the Russell is up 16% since Miracle Monday with the NASDAQ and S&P only up five and a half percent. Fang stocks, believe it or not, are down a couple percent since then. So to me, that is dramatically different dynamic. And it's interesting to see that we still got the S&P at the highs here. Yeah. Right now, as we're filming, it's about uh, almost uh, coming up on three o'clock Eastern time. And we got the S&P at uh, looks like 3703. Yeah, exactly. So the S&P can continue to forge higher. That internal move has been led by a lot of natural resources, Ash, right, which is very different from the lockdown rally, which was led by big tech. So we've got XLE up almost 40 percent now since uh, Miracle Cure Monday. Exxon Mobil today blasting through its 200 day moving average. I'm assuming that we're going to pick up some tailwinds from that. The second best performer that I'm watching has been Jets, right? The airline sector, the ETF is Jets, J-E-T-S. Sector's up 32%. We got a comment last week out of the Delta Airlines CEO um, that the market perceived as they would be burning less cash than they had been. Airlines got a big lift in their sales from that. And you know this rally just seems to be able to sustain itself on the market's ability to be able to look past you know, into a vaccinated world or a reopened world. And what's interesting is that you've got other sectors like today, you've got XME, industrial metals and mining straight up a rope, right? There's been an industrial metals melt up. Mm. Banks are starting to participate. Aerospace and defense are starting to participate. So that's really the key to me, Ash, that we've got a different rotation, but that the market is still sustaining with FANG stocks really not in the lead. And something I think that's something that the market probably didn't expect to happen. Yeah. You know, to continue on with Monday, one of the stories that I know that you uh, were watching is the story that uh, Goldman Sachs is considering moving its asset management arm uh, from New York City down to Florida. Yeah, I guess that's a feather in Mayor de Blasio's cap. And, um, you know, I got a feeling that that's what he might be here for. And, you know, when you when that that is Goldman Sachs responding to a change in their um, surroundings, I would think, you know, and you can go over it a million different ways. And I don't want a New York bash, but I tell you what's gone on there in the last nine months to a year has caused an exodus of, you know, city dwellers to move out to the suburbs and get away from living in what they're now perceiving as a probably less safe city life. And, you know, the corporate America is obviously going to follow because they don't want to be sending their employees into a, you know, God forbid, higher risk, you know, more dangerous daily atmosphere that may not be what they're accustomed to and certainly something that they may not go back to after this lockdown. So yeah. maybe they're pivoting, you know, maybe they're pivoting to, um, just a different atmosphere. Maybe they're pivoting directly to a red state. I don't know. But, you know, that certainly is something that we've got to keep an eye on because they are leaders of the industry and where they go, a lot of people follow. And you can imagine that probably five or six other big shots at other firms said, you know what, the coast may be clear to head down to Florida. Yeah. Why not? You know, so if we're going to be facing higher taxes and a different situation here in New York, I'm, I would be um, disappointed, but not shocked to see more of this. Tony, let me throw this out there. That's the political calculus uh, and the tactical consideration. What about this question? If we're in a different kind of strategic environment, one of the things that this terrible COVID crisis has done uh, is it's basically virtualized the world, right? It's virtualized the way we think about work. 
and so the question is, tax states that have higher tax regimes, higher especially income tax regimes, are they going to be as competitive against the Florida's, Texas's, Wyoming's of the world? Uh, and when when you can live anywhere and do your job from anywhere, how does that change the calculus about the way people think about where they want to live? Well, I mean, you think I think you spiked the football nicely right there, Ash. It, I mean, it changes the calculus of everything, you know. And this was, you know, that that headline, you know, you can let it go by casually, or you can let that headline smack you in the head and wake you up a little bit, like you yeah. said, because you know this changing calculus is going to change a lot about city life, and it's going to change a lot about markets, and it's going to change, you know, a lot about what traditionally has gone on in the financial industry, having been based in, you know, New York City center, largely around, you know, Goldman Sachs and their operations here, you know, they always ran yeah. a pretty high profile New York operation. And so this is something to consider. And like, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, people should be, you know, doing the calculus now as to what this is going to mean. I certainly don't have all the answers. Um, I still think it contributes to an expansion in the building sector in, in, in a couple of different ways, if I may. I mean, we just got interesting news out of Toll Brothers, and this isn't Goldman Sachs related, but related to moving out of the cities into suburbs, whether it's for city dwellers and individuals or for corporations. This to me is the home builder trade, right? This to me, you know, is rhymes with Toll Brothers coming out and saying that they've got a record for high priced homes. And now they've got some pricing power with a lot of competitive buying going on in their areas. So, you know, that's just the way that the you, you, the American landscape is changing a little bit. And so the Goldman Sachs headline, I think, plays into yeah. that, Ash, and, and we should all be um, just on our toes to know what it means. That's all. Yeah, you know, you think about it, the, these kids, young men, young women coming out of uh, schools, business schools, uh, they come uh, here to New York City. And uh, the calculus has been that they pay three grand for a studio apartment, and uh, you know that suddenly that that uh, low six figure salary that uh, that everyone back home thought sounded so great doesn't look so good when you're spending thirty six grand a year uh, on uh, a five hundred square foot apartment. That's so well put, Ash, and it brings me back to my days of coming out of college and the race in the late eighties was to get one of those investment banking. In, you know, um, associate jobs where you come out of school and you're an investment banker or in one of the sales and trading programs. And that was yeah. enough to get you by back then because you were making, you know, that early six figure salary at a young age and you were able to afford that rent. And now that salary is probably a lot lower and that rent's probably a lot higher. And, you know, you've got people doing all kinds of life calculations and yeah. it's all going to change. You know, it feel like I feel like that's what the 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 technology market shouted at us for the last seven months off of the March lockdown lows was that everything is going to change. It's going to be more technology centric. It's going yeah. to be more cybersecurity concerned. It's going to be more cloud storage driven. It's going to be more, you know, more of everything tech. So, you know, this is part of the calculus. It factors out. I like that you use that term because it factors into the markets just like it factors into the headlines. And it's very important to follow along with both. Yeah, I got a buddy finance guy who's convinced that he's going to be moving to Chiang Mai, Thailand. I'm not ruling out anything at this point, Ash. You know what I mean? People are going to be able to go where they want to go and hopefully still work for whom they want to work for. And um, I can't think of that. Uh, you know, that's just a great, you know, credit to our ingenuity if we're able to break up this whole, you know, the whole cultural idea of commuting an hour and a half to a big city for work.
you know, I think that might be one of the positives that we can squeak out of the COVID disaster. Tony, that time I spent all those years on New Jersey Transit, I'm never getting it back. Yeah, that's for that is for damn sure. I mean, I know my life changed for the better when I stopped commuting to New York City because I got a lot of ideas for those three and a half hours a day. I really do. Yeah, absolutely. Talking of which, uh, talking about locations and uh, and uh, residences, what are, what are your thoughts on uh, Airbnb? Man, you know, it's um, it fits with the market scenario right now where we're seeing little bits of M&A. We're seeing, you know, that we're seeing the Airbnb deal come out. Um, we're going to do the Tesla raise. Airbnb is going to be something to me. You know, the decision is, is it going to be something that the big plain vanillas are eventually going to come after or not? You know, is it going to be a, like a, um, you know, a Spotify where it's going to be one of those tech stocks that you're going to have to be long, or is it going to be, you know, something that, um, you know, maybe, you know, is it something like a WeWork type of scenario where it's, you know, seen its best days before it gets to the IPO. Now I haven't been following Airbnb story that closely or, um, you know, the pricing or anything like that. My preference is to sort of have an angle on whether or not I like the company. Um, I've used Airbnb, so I can say that I do. And I think that it's got a future in the future of the U.S. financial economy. You know, it's it's obviously going to change a lot from staying in big name hotels everywhere you go. So the Airbnb is just a, a, a market, you know, another um, factor that contributes to the bull market that we're seeing. Right. It's allowing them to access capital in the markets. Um, that's what they're there for. And, you know, I'm not going to I'm going to reserve judgment on the IPO picking a direction because I'm not smart enough to do that. We're going to see how it contributes to the new tech IPO landscape and see how it contributes to the whole story. My guess is right now with lots of capital looking for a, a safe place to go or at least a place with good return to go, I would imagine that Airbnb is going to be welcomed with pretty open arms given the market scenario that we're seeing right now, especially with the NASDAQ picking up a little bit of life in the last couple of weeks versus um, since Miracle Monday, which was four weeks ago now. So a little bit of a slight nuance in the rotation change. I think the Airbnb story is going to be just, you know, another, yeah, look at that. We saw more M&A on the way up. You know, Ash, typical, yeah. um, fits the narrative. Yeah, it does. And it fits the historical pattern as well. Let me ask you this. You've been talking about the numbers uh, since Miracle Monday, obviously, uh, very impressive data. Uh, if we rewind the clock back a little bit further and we go back to February 17, I think, uh, on or about, which is uh, when the sell-off began to happen, uh, we're above those numbers right now as well on the S&P, obviously less impressively than if you look at it from the, from the, from the turnaround day uh, of, uh, of Miracle Monday. But how about this, Tony? Let me just pick up on some of the points that Heli Drasnan made uh, in the intro. So the U.S. has added back about 50 6% of the jobs that they've lost since the spring, but there are still 9.8 million jobs that haven't recovered. Uh, and the losses at this point right now, uh, here in December, post-Miracle Monday, are at the same point that they were on par with the worst point in the Great Recession. Ooh. Well, that speaks to one and one and the same trade to me, Ash, and that is the trade where the Federal Reserve is inflating assets. And if you have assets, you're going to be okay, right? If you listen to BlackRock this week, I thought that was really interesting, right? The world's biggest asset manager raised their equity outlook to overweight from neutral. 
Let me read you a quote by BlackRock's Mike Pyle. The big change around the outlook itself is upgrading risk assets overall and seeing as 2021 as a very constructive year for risk assets, right? These guys are on the same plan. They're getting the same read from the Federal Reserve as we are. The Fed is inflating assets. You've got to own them or you're going to have a problem and get left out of this recovery. So I hate to frame it like that, but that's the harsh reality of it. And yeah. if the what, what what is more unemployment, more economic weakness, more joblessness, you know, what is Disney laying off another 30,000 workers? What is all of that eventually going to add up to, Ash? It's going to add up to a bigger response from the Federal Reserve. It's probably going to add up to a bigger balance sheet. It probably contributes more to the natural resources trade. You know, it probably blasts Bitcoin through the roof. I mean, some of these returns, Ash, since Miracle Monday, oil up 22%, Bitcoin up 21%, testing 20K again, gasoline up 16%, copper up 12%. I mean, you know, this is a serious, serious natural resource move in response to the Federal Reserve's actions. And so since these are the glaring, glaring sirens that are sounding in the markets to me, I'm trying to base my um, you know, investments in the natural resources sector, silo, call it. Yeah. So I you know, it feels you know, like that, we're gonna see more of the same for that. Yeah. You know, to that point, you had some interesting uh, bullet points uh, in your note uh, to me today, uh, where you were talking about the uh, about the the oil numbers in China. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, it's just important to know, you know, the entire every time oil goes on a run, it's largely because China and India are inhaling it at a ferocious pace. And we learned this week from China's import-export numbers that they um, just had the biggest, you know, another of the record month on the, excuse me, another consecutive record month, but they are importing up 10% basically every year for the last five or six, right? So they're setting a new record and increasing their intake by 10% every year. That is part of the driver of why we're out of the 30s, you know, out of the 40s into the 50s now in oil. So, and co and that's compound. If you think about that, that's compounding growth, right? So it's up 10 percent on that on a on a larger base every time. That's pretty substantial. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's almost like they're up to something. You know, they're still growing their economy. They're still growing out into the suburbs there, and it's a trade that you have to watch. You know, when we had that commodity super cycle, you can call it from say 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst through 2010 that was a lot of chinese buying right that was a lot of inhaling commodities that was a lot of commodities that went into building roads and bridges and and tanks and firearms and all kinds of things in china so you know it's it's very important to keep an eye on you know the level of consumption by china as a country so that's yeah. important um you know, the, the the gold trade is interesting to me as well right now. Yeah. You know, gold was getting beaten up a couple of days as a risk asset after that miracle Monday when tech stopped rallying and the natural resources sector took off. So there were 11 consecutive days of withdrawals from the total ETF, the gold's ETF total holdings. And so what I think happened is we had the last guys that bought gold above 2000 had to turn around and sell it because it wasn't performing. And now gold is going to go back to being an inflation hedge. She got a perfect bounce off of um, the 200 day moving average that lined up with a 50 percent pullback of the lockdown rally, which went from 1450 to 2075. 
And now we're looking forward to Christine Lagarde on Thursday of this week and hopefully coming out with something that's probably incrementally bullish for gold if she has any kind of an upside stimulus surprise. So, you know, Ash, we keep looking around, you know, poking casually around the natural resources sector, but it's starting to be the sector that's putting up those, you know, big game hunter type of percentage weeks and months. So now is the time that we really got to stay focused and make sure that we've got our eggs in the right basket. Yeah. Talking about resources and metal, you also have a thesis on base metal. Yeah. Well, you know, we I've been calling it, you know, jokingly, the... Um, the flash renaissance of base metals, right? Because they're up, you know, dramatically in such a short period of time. U.S. Steel has just joined um, the ranks of the um, industrial metals and mines that's rallying. You know, first we had the gold miners rallying. Then we had, you know, Freeport McMoran and Alcoa, a lot of the aluminum producers rallying. Now, all of a sudden, we've got steel companies joining um, the rally. So we've got XME flying up a rope and that industrial metals ETF outperforming almost everything else in the market since Miracle Monday. So, you know, that U.S. Steel story is about U.S. Steel buying the remaining 50.1% stake in Big River um, for cash, which was why the stock went flying. They didn't have to finance it at all. And, you know, the, now that we've got the steel stock starting to percolate in the industrial mining rally, that is something that you definitely do not want to stand in front of as we both have a monetization situation and a recovery situation going on at the same time. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. I'm curious what your thoughts are about the big picture framework and the way that U.S. equity markets are discounting news flow. Obviously, uh, equity markets are almost by definition looking ahead at the price of future cash flows. You know, another point that I thought that struck me from Haley's uh, intro today uh, was that Moody's Analytics has a report out that 12 million Americans are behind on rent and utilities payments. There are people out there who are really suffering. Markets are rising. Uh, what is it that markets are seeing? What's the time frame that they're looking at? And how do you think about that discounting function in the way that you look at price action? Man, Ash, that, that brings me right back to the thesis of you know, our bullish equity thesis, which is that the Federal Reserve is inflating assets, right? They are going to have to. They only, they're the one-trick pony that only knows how to expand their balance sheet. You know, and it kind of brings me back to Grant Williams' interview with Felix Zuloff a little bit, where you know we had to open our minds to the idea of a forty or fifty trillion dollar Federal Reserve balance sheet, and you know that's the thought that I think the market is picking up on. You know, it's picking up on a little bit of that, where the Federal Reserve is only going to address economic weakness with the same type of structure that they've been addressing it. Right. Emergency funding, stimulus checks at home. Right. We just got Janet Yellen at the Treasury to signal that we've got a double barrel dove, you know, in charge of handing out funds to the recovery. And I think that, you know, that's the inflationary story that's taken over since Miracle Monday over the lockdown story. And so when you start to picture, OK, if we're going to have more economic weakness in reality, but we may have some economic data beating on the screen, beating estimates that the market will take and run with. 
you know, we've got like we're throwing kerosene on the fire here a little bit in terms of how this equity market has gone essentially straight up since we came out with a vaccine and the market started looking past lockdowns. So, you know, we're in a situation that the market's never seen before and we are trying to price in, you know, what it's going to be like, like when Paul Tudor Jones said that, you know, his kids are like being held back, like with a bridle from going out and, you know, partying and seeing the world and doing things. You know, this is what the market is telling us right now. It's it's seeing a little bit of that. And it's knowing that the Federal Reserve has also got this sentiment, uh, excuse me, this easing and uh, dovish position on the markets where they can always add assets to the balance sheet. They can always send stimulus checks to try to help those employment issues and those, um, you know, debt paying shortcomings that I think we'll probably continue to see. But it gets complicated because we've never seen anything before. And it's that's the, the market keeps sending me the same story by making a new high that if you don't have assets, you're going to be left out of this recovery. Yeah. Boy, you bring up the great Grant Williams interview with Felix Suloff. Uh, at the time, uh, I didn't remember the number. I just remembered it seemed outlandishly high uh, at the time. But look, you know, we've gone from uh, from the balance sheet uh, beginning to contract. I think we got down to about uh, about three point eight, three point nine trillion. Uh, and basically now uh, up over seven point two trillion on the consolidated balance sheet. Yeah, forty or and fifty, the, and not looking so far fetched, is it? Well, when you think the rate of change, when you consider the rate of change, Ash, we went from four to seven in one fell swoop, right? That was essentially, you know, call it doubling the balance sheet, if you don't mind. And then, you know, once you do something like that, you know, now your mind, now you start talking about you know, it can go anywhere. And this right. is what they're going to do. And, you know, four to seven sounded like a big deal. Seven to 14, nobody's going to flinch. Right. So they, they just literally opened everybody's mind to this is what we do. And these are the, you know, daisy cutters that the Federal Reserve comes along with. But as we know, having you know, potentially disastrous effects on society, as you just pointed out, you know, it's not giving people more jobs. It is not allowing them to pay their mortgage or to pay the rent on their business and, you know, go ahead and open up. So we're going to have a lot of fallout that we haven't seen before that we're going to have to deal with. We're going to have some economic growth on top of, you know, this, you know, because of the Federal's Act, Federal Reserve's actions, a lot of the economic data like PMI and industrial production is going to pop right back into shape while we have more people that are unemployed and struggling to pay their rent. So, yeah. you know, the market's kind of trying to jive out how it's going to be acting in this situation. And I think it's looking directly at Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell saying, what are you guys going to do next? Yeah, you know, and, and to get back to that point, I, I'm certainly not predicting a particular position for the balance sheet. Uh, but when you think about the direction and, as you say, the rate of change, uh, it just starts to look less far fetched. There's a feeling uh, that, you know, wh why, why, what's to prevent that from happening? Are there any structural barriers that prevent it from happening? Are there any guardrails in place? And it seems as though the answer is is potentially no. The answer is no until um, all of those that are out of work start marching on Washington and making enough noise for people to hear them. You know, and I don't want to go into that scenario, but I fear that you know our our society has been a little bit um, you know mesmerized by a lot of things tech. You know, and if as long as technology can keep you your nose buried in your iPhone, maybe a lot of people don't realize what's going on. And you hate to think that that's the deal. But just like we were discussing before the show, Ash, right, that was kind of interesting. 
there's no college course that teaches you the basics of finance or the basics of markets, maybe an idea for Ralph. But, you know, these are the kind of things where you talk about people start to go and figure out what's going to happen when they can't pay their rent for a number of months, you know, and they start to say, okay, who do I turn to now? And now everybody is turning toward the stimulus bill, which is still very much a focal point of the markets by the media. I'm not really focused as much on it because I know that it's coming. And I think the market decided that the stimulus is coming no matter what. But in reality, we've got to get the stimulus into the hands of the people that need it. You know, and, and I think that I fear that that's going to be the big disconnect that we're going to be working with for the next several months. You know, it looks like, you know, the media is reporting, which hasn't been a great job, but the media reporting on the PPP loans shows very much like it went to a lot of places that maybe didn't need it to survive. And it didn't get to a lot of places that likely do need it to survive. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get on that type of a uh, preacher stool right now, but you know, there are going to be disconnects that continue to occur because of that. And I think that once people wake up to, hey, how come the Federal Reserve is buying this ETF that has Apple bonds in it and the Apple stock is worth gazillion dollars? How come I still can't get the twelve hundred bucks to pay my rent? You know, so as that story socializes itself is the only way that we get to a point where there's any pushback against this type of policy. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, that number, uh, 12 million Americans behind uh, on rent and utilities. I, I mean, it sounds like a statistic, but the amount of human suffering and pain that that represents is extraordinary. And that's one in it's greater than one in 30 uh, of every American men, women and children in the United States. Right. That's a huge number of people. That's a huge number of households that are impaired uh, by basically an absence of income. Whether yeah. it's get, getting hours cut back, having small businesses uh, not generate the revenue that they did, uh, or getting laid off, not being able to find a job, any combination of those factors, um, it's, just a, it's just a grim and dismal number. It is. And I think that we're getting to the point where I'm, I'm sure you saw the video of um, the woman who's a restaurant owner in Los Angeles. Yeah, and, you know, she was, her restaurant shut down. Nobody's allowed to go there. And, the governor or the mayor gave, um, you know, a movie theater the license to set up for a set and record something right across from her restaurant where they had to set up, you know, a picnic area for the people that are working on the set. And so her video was so heartfelt. And I think, you know, I, I think feel like that's the zeitgeist in America right now. I feel like that covers you know, the heart of America's mood is that, you know, women like her and business owners like her that are being persecuted while, you know, there's another set of rules for a different set of people, whether you're in the government or you're making a movie or something like that. I feel like we're at the point where people see this and they probably aren't going to sit around that much longer. Let's just say that without collecting a paycheck, without being able to pay rent. I feel like that woman is, she's truly captured the spirit of the country that's in that predicament really well. And I think that she, with that getting around, I think people will be motivated to sort of push back against being locked down with no other circumstance to deal with. That's what I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess the potential good news here, if you want to look for a silver lining, especially a bigger picture silver lining, uh, obviously one of the big news stories today uh, is the United Kingdom beginning to deploy the Pfizer vaccine. 
uh, actually in the field to uh, the broad population. Uh, and this has the potential, the potential. Uh, obviously, it's tricky to deploy. Uh, there are a lot of obstacles to be overcome logistically. Uh, but once you get broader vaccine uh, rollout, this is the thing that has the potential to really change the tide. Yeah, they're going to they're going to try to make something like this mandatory. I think the big hurdle that they're going to have to get over is the mathematics that Pfizer's vaccine is 95% effective in preventing COVID, but your immune system is 99.9% effective versus beating it. To me, that's the, that's a tough sell for the drug and a mandatory vaccine, but you know, in the UK, you know, while it seems like the media is slamming it on the tape, there are, you know, an equal number of protest videos in the UK that are popping up where they don't necessarily aren't necessarily accepting the vaccine with open arms. So we've got that problem to deal with. Right, Ash, like on top of the logistics of the distribution, you know, you've got to get the buy in of people saying, yeah, OK, Pfizer, you know, go ahead, clinically untested. And I know that you signed your away all the liability and that you have no liability in distributing this vaccine. Hit me in the arm. I don't know how popular that's going to be. I really don't, because it's not something I'm lining up for. I'll tell you that right now. Well, it's something that remains to be seen in terms of uh, what the uh, what the what populations uh, will accept. It's certainly my hope uh, that the that the safety data comes out and is very clear uh, that it is in fact safe. And uh, if that's the case, we certainly hope that uh, that people will get it. Uh, but beyond that, thank God I'm not the person who has to make that decision. We, there's just not enough time on the tape to know whether or not it's it's uh, there are any disastrous side effects. You know, in plain English, that's the only thing that I think is holding people back. You know, maybe if we had clinical trials and things taking place for months before our eyes, and we could see places where it went wrong and places where it went really right, that's where you get you know an educated public. You know, having people step up to a vaccine with a blindfold on is not going to work. Uh, remains to be seen what happens there. Tony, Luckily, the markets work. <laughs> Yeah. Tony, talking of which, as you look out uh, here, obviously only Tuesdays, you look out for the rest of the week, what are you going to be looking for uh, to confirm the hypothesis? New highs. New highs in stocks. This week, you know, this was... Uh, across, this broad, across broad equity indices? Any places yeah, in particular man. sectors? I mean, you know, the, the Russell 2K is roaring to new highs, the Dow is roaring, the Nasdaq's carving new highs. I mean, the worst thing that happened to the bears this week was that you know Apple picked up and, and ran and Google picked up and ran. And now, you know, you even though Fang as a group is really not advancing, you know, you've got different sectors leading the market. You've got a couple of Fang stocks like Apple leading technology, and you've got semiconductors just up a total rope. I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing where they're due to pull back because the runaway rally has been so steep. But now that you've got sectors of technology back in the game, you know, after having consolidated for several months. I mean, if the software sector gets back on its feet again and starts running it with the lead like it's had all year, I mean, look out for what could happen in the first quarter of 2021, you know? So this is the kind of time where if you're trying to be cute and short the markets, you're going to have really small windows and really steep uh, markets to have to cover in. Because I think that that we've got enough momentum now that the writing is on the wall, that the S&P is going to wind up at a higher number and that there are portfolio managers that are not positioned for it just yet. Yeah, Tony Greer, very well said. I think it's the best place to leave it. 
That's fine with me, man. We can leave off there. You know, the, there's a couple of risks that are worth mentioning, Ash, if I may. And yeah, uh, please. The, please. Yeah, the and I just want to say because I, I don't want to think that you know I don't want people to think that you know I've got blinders on as a trader and that I'm not seeing the risks, right? I understand that sentiment is getting hot. Right? I understand that the put call ratio is down to low extremes, right? I understand that we could have a snapback rally in the dollar that could deflate commodities for a period of time. But the big picture is, and I think, and, and I'm keying on this BlackRock statement during a week that I think the S&P is due to carve its way higher. You know, the, the focus is on upgrading risk assets overall and a constructive year ahead for risk assets. So, you know, that that's what's got the animal spirits roaring. And I'm expecting a little bit more of this for the rest of the week, Ash. We'll see next Tuesday if I'm right. Or excuse me, we'll see in two weeks if I'm right. But this is what I'm looking for, man. Crisp and clean, the big picture, Tony Greer. Thanks, bro. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.